The self-reflexive critique, notes Althusser, places Lacan in the strange position of revealing that authority is a bluff, yet a bluff that's somehow still taken seriously. Lacan was thus playing a double game. To philosophers, he brought the guarantee of the master who was supposed to know what Freud thought. Psychoanalysts, he brought the guarantee of the master who was supposed to know what thinking philosophically means. He duped everybody, and quite plausibly, despite his extreme trickiness, he duped himself as well. It is too straightforward, therefore, to say that Lacan is a charlatan and nothing more. The self-reflexive way he reveals that he is imitating the voice of the master makes him not just a charlatan, but a meta-charlatan. Lacan is ultimately a fraudulent master whose duplicity is enacted not for the sake of tricking us, but in order to open our eyes to the fact that authority is always a deceit that only succeeds when we fall for the would-be master's bluff. The very rules of eating of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machine and Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, consider throwing us a buck a month at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. And we're excited to have on Peter D. Matthews, whose recent book, Lacan the Charlatan, has been published in the Paul Grave Lacan series last year. And Peter, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you guys? We're excited. I'm excited. We're, yeah, this is how we're spending our Saturday night. It's, uh, it's, I mean, we're spending we're our old. Saturday night with you and your Sunday morning, which is interesting. My Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking to us from Hong Kong. Is that right? From Korea, Seoul. Right? Seoul. Seoul. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for having me on, guys. Uh, I really appreciate the, uh, the interest in my work. I'm looking forward to, to talking to you some more about it. Like we're kind of saying in the pre-show, I'm more of the Lacan fanboy, and it's sort of, uh, I would say, I don't think he's necessarily the best analyst or philosopher, but as far as a, as a pure thinker, I think is where he shines. And I just, I find the creativity in his presentation and his and his work to be just extremely compelling. So obviously this was like a, the perfect book for me to read. I'm like your target audience. The way the book is, it's not necessarily biography it's sort of this you're weaving a nice little kind of mixture of some of the theoretical points you're picking up some critique and then you know with a little you know a little bit of biographical detail perhaps touched on here and there to fill in the blanks the book itself is like autobiographical in in a sense in one sense that this is a Lacan as I mentioned at the beginning of the the book was kind of a a thinker that I was briefly sort of obsessed with my time as a student (laughs) and then sort of Felt I like I had outgrown, but mm. I had a sabbatical from middle of 2016 to 2017, and I I wanted to write a book. And the the idea that kept on coming back to me after all those years was I wanted to explore a kind of 
the idea that I took from seminar 11 of the subject who are supposed to know of this idea of mutual misunderstanding, mm-hmm. right? Basically that, that basically when the two subjects look at each other, they kind of project their imaginary version of what they imagine the other to be like. And that was sort of like, that was the, the beginning of the book. And actually I wrote this book twice. I, I wrote it the first time around and I finished the draft. It took me a year to write the damn thing. And then I, <laughs> I read it through and I was like, no, I, I need to read a whole lot more. And I just spent the next couple of years just reading like a madman. I read well over a hundred books just wow. background oh, man. for what I was doing here. So, so this is actually like version two of this book because I, I wasn't happy with the with the first version. Now, did you have the same structure in mind in that first draft of going through each thinker who has the similar refrain of labeling Lacan as a charlatan and a quack? Or did that come in 2.0? They came in the second version. Yeah. The first version, I was focusing more upon Lacan and the, the seminars and the, the écrit, those writings about how this idea of mastery is, is mm. a kind of um, a fraudulent kind of idea. So all that, those ideas, obviously, they got reworked into the, mm-hmm. the second version. But then I, as I was doing all that background reading, I was sort of, as we were talking about in the pre-show, one of the things that really puzzled me about the critics of Lacan was the way in which they seemed to refuse to engage in a genuine critique, mm. right? So you had a lot of thinkers, a lot of very well-known figures, you know, like Chomsky and so on, like Sokol and Brickbong, like Dylan Evans, coming out and saying, Lacan is a charlatan, right? He's just a, a, a clever wordsmith. He dazzled everyone on the French scene with his, you know, his flashy ideas and his skill with words, but right. there is no substance there. And it seemed to me that was kind of a, a way of avoiding critique, right? Mm-hmm. Dismissing Lacan, but while avoiding critique. And so I wanted to go through, and it seemed to me there was a, a lot I could do there with looking at the different aspects of the ways in which these thinkers said that Lacan's a charlatan. So Raymond Tallis, for example, gave me a chance to look for my own benefit too, to look really in depth at the way in which Lacan's linguistic theories, mm-hmm. for example, changed and evolved. When I was studying Lacan in university, of course, those with that sort of like the structuralist, structuralist slash post-structuralist Lacan was the, the one that was really emphasized, right? So as well as the mirror stage essay, of course. Those ideas about the signifier and like, you know, you know the world is made up of signs and all those kinds of things, that was what was foregrounded. And so looking at Talus and his argument and then looking at the way in which Lacan's ideas change and evolve across the seminars. Right. And how, how he moves away from that sort of structuralist set of ideas and sort of like makes that sort of like dramatic break that some of the, the thinkers I'm sure we'll talk about later on, like Tomsic and Cordela talk about the way in which, and Kopiek as well, talk about how Seminar 17 is so transitional for the mm-hmm. way in which he sort of collapses the, the opposition between the symbolic and the real. I think this is great. And, and, and you brought up Raymond Tallis, whom I've never heard of, and i I'm not sure if he's well known. I, I, one of the things that seemed to come out when looking at his work as, as you portray it and reading, I read his little Wikipedia article and didn't really learn too much there, but it does seem like he has a thorn in his side that he tried to save, you know, American university discourse from the, from the French, from, you know, from the French thinkers, the French invasion. And he seems to bemoan his, his lot in being ignored or being well first of all since it's 
this is your second chapter in the book, Lacan, the linguistic charlatan, right? And right. and and I suppose Raymond Tallis believed that his 1988 work, Not So Sure, was a humorous title for his book. But this gets into his, as you see it, is his argument that So Sure shouldn't be taken seriously at all, and therefore that undermines many of the French thinkers, or is it Lacan's specific use of Saussure that he seems to conflate the two? Because as you pointed out, and I didn't know this until reading your book, it's not really until the 50s that Lacan is is taking seriously structuralist linguistics. And then it's later that he seems to jettison those ideas. I think probably... Well, for me, in rethinking this this particular aspect, a couple of thinkers were particularly important. One was probably the the book that I looked up to most while writing this book was David Macy's book, Lacan in Context, which was published in, in 1988, but remains just like a, a really amazing, critical evaluation of Lacan. He's on the one hand, you know, he's a he's well-versed in Lacan and he, he really knows Lacan's ideas, but he's very willing in that book to point out the limitations of what Lacan is doing. And he has a fantastic chapter in that book about the way in which basically he says that Lacan's claim to being a linguist is basically bullshit, right? That mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's playing sort of linguistic games and he's interested in language, but Lacan can have absolutely no claim to being a linguist. And I mean, you know, right. this is quite a, this is quite a forceful thing to say from someone mm-hmm. like, like Macy. And so there, there is, of course, the, the limitations of, of what he's doing in terms of linguistics, but then, of course, he's still doing some interesting things with getting us to think about language. And then, of course, the other the other person that really helps to place this in perspective is, is Zizek, because Zizek is, is one of those people who did the opposite of what most people have done with Lacan, which is that people are usually introduced to the, the early to middle Lacan. Right. Right. Where we see that the structuralism, especially from the, like the Rome discourse, is highlighted very, is really foregrounded as being like the groundbreaking part of Lacan. Whereas Zizek reads Lacan through the later, yeah. later Lacan and sort of like goes back and he, I show it in the book where there's there's a, a collection on Lacan and, and language or something right, like that. Right. And like Zizek is invited to, to write a chapter in this. And he like starts out the chapter very, you know, following the, the basically the first paragraph of the book says, this is what the book is about. And so I'm following this particular topic. And then he's like, and then he's like, but I'm going to throw all that out. And I'm going to talk about how all of that is a, like an incorrect reading of Lacan and how Lacan moved away from all of that. It seems a little ballsy, right? To do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It really is fascinating to see how from that seminar 17, that's why I said the other the other person is John Kopiek, who mm-hmm. in Read My Desire talks about how when Lacan goes to meet with the, the radical students at Vincennes, have you guys read that famous, there's like a transcript of their meeting. It's included in the translation of seminar 17. I should have grabbed that uh, because I briefly uh, recall some of the highlights. It's amazing. It's also, I think it's also included in the um, the translation of television as well. They include it as a supplement there. And basically it's this meeting that Lacan is invited to meet with these radical students at the Vincennes University, which of course is the radical university that they they founded after the, the events of May 68. And like all the students there are like these radical Marxists and they, they're really hostile to him. And, you know, Lacan comes in and he he like starts writing the four formula that he has from, yeah. he's developing for seven, 
Seminar 17 up on the board and they're all like, what are you doing? Like, this isn't, this isn't radical. This isn't revolutionary. This is just more structuralism. And he famously tells them like, you know, you're, you are looking for a master and you don't realize it and you're going to get one. Right. But what Kopiek does really well in her sort of her reporting of this particular incident is the way in which she shows that while on the surface, these four discourses look like nothing new. They look like just a, a sort of a, a more fancy version of Lacan's earlier sort of math themes or, or formula from the, the Rome report. Actually, they are a collapsing of that distance between the real and the, and the symbolic. And this is where sort of like, for me, people like Deleuze come to this idea through Spinoza, right? Mm. Through mm-hmm. this idea of kind of a, a kind of monism, right? Where you can't separate the symbolic from the real. They're not two separate things. And I think this is this is sort of Lacan's moment as well, where through the four discourses, he shows that there is always this, this relationship between between the symbolic and the real. And that these these four discourses are basically four four positions related to, to how those two things interact with each other, but really they are part of the same thing. That was one of the threads that I really enjoyed throughout the work is the centrality of the four discourses and how they recur and help to ballast your arguments about about authority, about mastery and self-mastery. And I guess with um, with Talis, as you point out, one of the flaws of his arguments, not the whole, but one of them seems to be that he wants to, one of the most famous essays is the uh, I always mess up the, the title of it, what the, the entrance of the eye into the, the mirror stage essay, right? This one yep. was, which was written in 36. But your your point is, is that this doesn't hold water. If you're going to attack Lacan on on his use of Saussure and, and structural linguistics, you know, if you've only read the mirror stage, that doesn't really seem like you've done your homework. Because as you point out, he hadn't even begun reading the general course in linguistics. He hadn't really had that encounter until what, almost 15, 20 years later. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit like, you know, criticizing Marx having only read the communist manifesto or, yes. or <laughs> Nietzsche for only having read the birth of tragedy. You know, it's like you, you can do it, right. You can, you can criticize those works, but you always have to criticize them with, with the understanding that their work continues to develop and, and change as their career unfolds. So you can't just you know, latch onto an early work and say that this is everything that is, is about them. And especially because of course, Lacan, as I talk about in that chapter, he's, quite clearly struggling with the same ideas that Talos is, is identifying. Like he sort of like, mm-hmm. he sort of like comes to realize the extent to which his structuralism is a kind of linguistic idealism. And even Merleau-Ponty kind of says this to him. And so, I, as I said, I think, I think if you read the seminars in like sort of chronological order, you can see him struggling to, to sort of solve that problem and that that finally seminar 17 seems to be the, the not the final solution because of course he goes <laughs> off onto his mathemes and knots and all sorts yeah. of other crazy things. But certainly it's the break that occurs that sort of like at least solves the linguistic side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that you you point out um, one of the charges Talis makes is about linguistic idealism. And you have the quote where Lacan says, if, if idealism is nothing but thoughts, then, then place me with the realists. It's kind of like perhaps how sometimes the Derrida quote, nothing outside the text gets, <laughs> gets hyperbolically taken out of context. Yes. Is, is it similar to something like that? I think it's very similar to that. Yeah. 
Although I have a little little less sympathy for for Derrida in <laughs> making that that particular formula, but but yeah, yeah, it's you're right, and I think I think it's also partly because you know Lacan has a very, fairly sort of unconventional way of of interpreting and understanding a lot of these thinkers. I mean, like I talked about in the the uh, the, the following chapter about like Descartes and mathematics, mm-hmm. and so sort of like his his reading of Descartes is is very unconventional. Right. right. He's not, he's not, we don't usually just think of him in this way of like, basically he says the Enlightenment project was founded by Descartes and is about doubt. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that he then like meta, sort of metatextually applies this to Descartes, that Descartes is de- doubting Descartes when Descartes never does doubt Descartes. <laughs> right. He never does, but he applies that, that sort of logic to him. I think he does that a lot with a lot of thinkers where he reads them in this sort of idiosyncratic sort of way. And mm-hmm. then, then people like Talos might come along and read him in a more conventional sort of way and be like, oh, that's not at all how it is, right? But yeah, um, this is is this is this what what you take away from Nancy and Lacoulabart, where it's about this diversion of thinkers that kind of gets subsumed into Lacan's framework. It's maybe what Deleuze would call buggery, right? Where you're, you're sort of giving a monstrous child to each thinker, but they can't really just. Dis- Disclaim them. Yeah, I really love that the um, the Lakulabat and Nancy book. It is a it's a fantastic read, and I think it, it was the first book on on like real. I mean, I, I know Lemaire is is considered to be the very first like academic work on on Lacan, but but their work is the first sort of genuine critique mm-hmm. attempt to critique Lacan, and it's really mostly just their sort of their very Derridean sort of conclusion where they mm-hmm. they kind of misunderstand misunderstand i think the or mis deliberately maybe mis- mm-hmm. misread his conclusion but i think their their sort of their analysis of his i don't know if you call it dishonest but his his uh his very how would you say convenient misreading <laughs> right mm-hmm. so that augustine can be you know like a 20th century like Caesarian linguist yeah. you know <laughs> you know it's kind of it's kind of amusing the way in which he's able to place all of these these different thinkers and they all they all like somehow Freudian and somehow Caesarian and somehow fit into like the discourse that he is talking about without having to take into account of course the very radical sort of historical differences that separate them from what he's doing it's very clever i don't think it's necessarily like a terribly honest but but, but it's, it's not necessarily like, as malicious as some of these these other accusers right. like Talus. Right, I think so. Yeah. I think Nancy and Lakulabad also come across to that, that sort of like position as well. They they are kind of admiring of what he's doing in that sort of sense. They never sort of like, well, he's just a malicious thinker and we we should dismiss him. Right. They they do sort of like repeatedly say the extent to which like they that we should still engage with his ideas, engage with his work. And like, as I said, this, this is what I asked for from the critics of Lacan, right? Is that they, is they make a genuine attempt to, to cr- critique his ideas. And I think Nancy and Lakulabat are, are one example of that. Bork Jakobsen is another. Rustang, the subject of the final chapter, is, is another. And those, those group of thinkers, they retain some sort of like integrity in the right. way in which they in which they sort of like attempt to look at the limits of what Lacan is doing, whereas some of the other thinkers like Talus, I mean, by the time I mean I know when when I was researching this project, there were a number of translations of Lacan that I had never read, including Seminar Seventeen actually, because that had only recently been um, relatively recently been published. It wasn't available when I was a when I was a student. 
but there appears to be no no wider reading involved in in his project. There's just the just one quote from the Rome report and commentary on the mirror stage. Right. And so that's that's very thin for someone who published you know thirty years of or had thirty years of seminars, Acre, and there's also some other fantastic little additions to. I don't know if you've seen them along the way, like uh, talking to brick walls and and stuff like that that have come out since as well. Would you ascribe to Talis something that I know, uh, you, I forget the author you quote, but the, but this will be the subject of the next chapter of on on Lacan, the mathematical charlatan and, and so-called and Brigmont and their take on Lacan. But would you ascribe the same idea that perhaps Talis doesn't do the legwork because he can't or doesn't have the the theoretical toolbox to engage Lacan on, on, on his ground. And so it's much easier to sort of do a, a, a sort of free-for-all polemical attack based on the flimsiest of understandings of Caesarian linguistics. Well, I don't know if you looked up Talis's background, but he's not a, he's not a literary theorist or a no. theorist in any way. He's, Geriatric? He's- Geriatric medicine, yeah. Yeah. That's his background. So, I mean, it's not just his reading of Lacan that's very thin on the ground. Like when you look at his readings of Derrida and Foucault, Roland Barthes, they all, all, he just like read a very small selection of these thinkers. And he seems to, he seems to have a kind of, uh, he has a bee in his bonnet about the rise of sort of French theory. But if you also read what he talks more generally about, he has this very, sort of narrow idea of what literature should also be right, right? okay so so for instance like he he really hates more sort of like experimental sort of mm-hmm. uh, postmodern fiction so so he dismisses out of hand for example iris murdoch's the c the c right as being just like nonsense as rubbish right he right, basically right. says so it's not just a distaste for for theory itself it's also he has this this very strong sort of reaction against postmodern fiction as well that is right. part of this sort of kind of almost reactionary kind of mindset yeah. that he he's putting together here it's really hard to tell how much of it is like sort of attached to a politics because it doesn't seem to be like articulated directly as a as a kind of you know necessarily like oh he's a conservative in that sort of right, sense. But, right, that's, right. But, but that's basically where it takes you in that sort of direction and it seems like he's doing the very thing that Lacan overcomes or performs the alpha bong of, which is this, at the end of the day, it seems like he is performing mastery without being aware of it, without showing us the trick. He's trying to, to just dismiss from some sort of purported authoritative position. I'm not sure where, you know, uh, just, just from the reactionary stance itself being the moral high ground, so to speak. For me, this is one of the, the sort of like the, the key things at stake in the book is this idea of mastery. And I gave some several definitions of it, but for me, mastery overall, especially in how Lacan is describing it, is something that I wrote it down so I could say it exactly in the words right, I right. said. The discourse of mastery as the unilateral imposition of one's own desire. Like so basically, that. basically, I believe this, I think this, therefore, this is how it is. Right. And so you impose this on the world, upon others, upon life. And that this is a discourse with, of course, a long history in, in human culture, whether it is in theology, right? Mm-hmm. So famously, uh, God's speech to Job, right? Yes. Where he basically, you- because he says, you know, I'm God, you're Job, yeah. so shut up, bitch. You know, <laughs> like, I, yeah. you made the world. 
I did. So, yeah, I, I, I love I love that when when Job finally finally gets to the point where he has the breakdown and says and asks why, you know, why why all this bad stuff? Because he keeps hearing that oh, you, you obviously did something wrong, right? And I I, I think that that's uh, and you do bring this up in the book this this right. Job moment and yeah, I mean it's that's perfectly describes articulates the master's the master discourse, correct? Right. God to Job. God to Job. But he basically says. I don't have to give you a reason, mm-hmm. right? There's, there doesn't. That's one of the key things I think is is important here in understanding about the master's discourse. Is the master what the privilege of the master is that he or she doesn't have to give a reason for what what they're doing. They can just unilaterally impose their beliefs and their ideas as to what is reality upon others. So I talk about this also a bit in the the Descartes section mm-hmm. where I talk about how. The discourse of the university discourse and the discourse of knowledge mm-hmm. undermine that because if you have the a true master's discourse where God can say two plus two equals five, right, right, then the master is still imposing on reality. But you know things like logic and so on show us, of course, no one is going to respect that kind of master in in modern society. And of course, the other one, the other example of that kind of sort of authoritarian, you must believe what I say. Of course, is comes to us in the form of monarchy, right? And especially absolutism and the divine right of kings. And so I think a lot of what I'm interested in with Lacan is the way in which he's actually addressing how do we get beyond that kind of mastery, right? How, of course, you know, we don't want to have kings. We don't, we don't want to have a monarchy. We don't have, want to have absolute rule. But then what do you put in its place that doesn't become a new master discourse? And so that's why I find the the stuff I I, I know I talk about it in the Schneiderman chapter where I talk about how Lacan goes back to his his reading of the 18th century. This leads Lacan to to think about in Seminar Seven the the twin figures of Kant and Saad. What is very interesting to him about them, especially as an analyst who is thinking about neurosis and stuff like that, is the way in which the more we've had access to pleasure, the the less the lower the barriers, the less pleasure we seem to be able to feel. Not because people have stopped us from having pleasure, but because of the the structural way in which pleasure seems to work. Those are all very fascinating to me because like of the way in which they are wrapped up in this sort of like, there's obviously the French Revolution and that Kant and Sade are responding to is a revolution supposedly outwardly against mastery, against the king, against monarchy. But Secretly, it kind of allows a kind of a new, a new, more insidious kind of mastery that then Lacan again identifies, for instance, from May 1968 as being again entering by the back door, this, this new, more insidious, hidden kind of mastery. Your definition that you had of the master's discourse as this unilateral imposition of, of my desire onto others, is it something like that? I'll read it again. The yeah. discourse of mastery as unilateral imposition of one's desire on others. Okay, that's and that foreshadows, as you already pointed out, you know, similar seven, but specifically this argument about utilitarianism that arises after the French Revolution, and that it gets entwined with this discourse about usefulness and rationality, and therefore, if utility, pleasure yeah. Or, or yeah, utility, therefore, if, if jouissance or pleasure is a uh, the enjoyment is is useless. It therefore cannot be rational, and then therefore cannot be pleasure. Right? This we'll return to that. The next chapter is about Lacan, the mathematical charlatan. And this one I, I mentioned earlier, but this might be the one most familiar to a more general audience. 
right. because it details the thinkers. And this chapter has to do with SoCal and Brickmont and their book, Fashionable Nonsense, which I didn't know in French. The original title is Intellectual Impostures. So I, I think either title is actually good and gets to the heart of it. I mentioned to you too in the break that I had read this mostly looking for um, what they say about Deleuze and Guattari. But do you want to say for the audience, maybe sketch out some of the general outlines of the so-called, um, not to pun, so-called uh, <laughs> hoax and, and sort of lead us into their discussion of Lacan as you work through it in, in this chapter? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, a number of like aspects to this particular like chapter that I, I look at. Obviously, they begin with looking at the, the superficial nature of, extremely superficial nature of what Sokol and Brickbaum do. I'm certainly not the first to address this. I talk about, as you mentioned uh, in the break, um, Bruce Fink mm-hmm. like also does quite a, a detailed rebuttal of how Lacan is not meaning these psychoanalytic formula as being mathematical formula, that they are you know, meant in a quite different context and that they therefore have quite a different meaning. So he's borrowing some notation, but he's using it in a totally different way. It brought me to a couple of other, other things because, first of all, the Sokol and Brickman basically, they claim a consensus about amongst Lacanian critics about the use of the mathemes. And they sort of say that Lacan's followers all follow the mathemes as if they are God-given scripture by the by the master, and you know this is kind of a contrast in in a sense to to what we see in the in the chapter on Talos because there, there is quite a quite a decent sort of like consensus, especially amongst the the sort of like the latest the kind of so those who've been influenced by the readings of Zizek and Macy and Kopiak and so on that there is a, a complexity to what what Lacan is doing that goes far beyond the sort of like the, the Saussurian, Levi-Straussian understanding of his, his linguistics. So there's there's already like a complexity, but also quite a, a consensus with regard to Lacan's use of, of language and the signifier. But this ridiculous claim that they make about about the, the consensus amongst Lacan's so-called disciples about the, the Bathemes being this new brilliant language is quite not substantiated at all when I looked at the the different critics who are talking about what the mathemes actually mean. So some of them, some of them say like it's just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Some of them say it is some of them, a small minority say they are useful for understanding his concepts. Others talk about you can see them as him trying to do something, but that he doesn't really follow through on it. So like on on page 75, like I gave in the footnotes, I gave like four four quotations, one from Francois Rouston, one from David Macy, one from Jane Gallup, and one from Malcolm Bowie, right? And they all have, these are all famous Lacanian scholars, and they all have totally different takes on what the mathemes are for and what they're doing and how to read them and understand them. So for me, this is just like one one very sort of brazen example of the way in which Sokol and Brickman don't even have the basics down. They only very talk vaguely talk about who these disciples are. They obviously haven't read any of the, no. the surrounding literature. They obviously don't know what Lacan is actually doing. If anyone does know, know what he's doing with the mathemes. And so and so as I talk about that section, that was not done. Derrida's famous statement about them was that basically they didn't do the work. They didn't do the, right. they didn't engage the critique. They just sort of elided it by pointing to some some passages, as you said, from the passage from Guattari that you read, <laughs> was similar, right? They just, oh, this doesn't mean anything. Therefore, yes. it's nonsense. <clears throat> Which is basically, I don't understand it. Therefore, no one can, right? Yes, <laughs> very, yes. Very sort of arrogant sort of... Um, 
idea. So, I mean, obviously, I, I looked at some sort of uh, key examples of this, but one of the things that I, I wanted to do differently in my chapter, first of all, was I wanted to look not so much at the targeted critiques, right? The, the critiques of particular thinkers like Lacan, Grattari, et cetera, Kristeva that are famously highlighted, but they have two chapters in the book, right? That sort of are more about their own takes and their own theories about mm-hmm. what, what they are doing in fashionable nonsense or intellectual impostures. So it's very interesting to me to see the way in which they, they claim to be defending the enlightenment, this is Sokol and Brickmon's central claim. They're, they're sort of like, we are defending the Enlightenment. But then when I came to try to figure out, well, which Enlightenment, like which thinkers <laughs> are they standing up for? I couldn't really find any. <laughs> like, like they're definitely not Spinozists. They're not Cartesians, mm-hmm. right? They, they're not Voltarians. They're, they're not Rousseauists. Who are they standing up for? And it seems to me this is a really very dubious version of the Enlightenment. Basically, they, they don't like anything that is too sort of self-reflexive in the way in which it critiques rationality and it critiques what they're doing in terms of science. And of course, this, as I said, this is not the Enlightenment then. You can't include any actual Enlightenment figures if you don't include a, a sort of a radical skepticism about, about the self and about the world in that, because that, of course, is to me anyway, is the, the core of what the, what the Enlightenment is, is doing, right? Yeah, I mean, all of this is, is very interesting you one of the the Zizek quotes that you bring out in this chapter is uh him discussing Kant's famous influential essay what is enlightenment uh or what is I set the title or I might be yeah, yeah. Foucault also has a essay named that but uh he makes the point right that it's argue all you want, but, but obey that's kind of what it bo- what Zizek boils it down to correct and it seems yes. like perhaps that is, is this then one of the key figures of the university discourse? And perhaps this is what Sokal and Brigman are using as their, their sort of shield saying, yeah. we're, we're, we're neutral observers. We don't have a dog in this fight. This we're, is for your own good. Yeah, this is for your we're own warning good. warning you for your own good. Right, this, right. This is like junk food, basically. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's effectively. That's really kind of, kind of, yeah, right. That's a nice little metaphor, if you'll. They don't say that they're neutral. They say that they are traditional left-wing thinkers. Ah, <laughs> like, traditional left-wing humanists who, who, <laughs> who fear that the progressive cause is being led astray by this kind of like anti-intellectual nonsense as they see it. You do uh, point to their preface where they, they kind of say like, hey, we're not against philosophy or, you know, or against, I don't know if they call it the human sciences or the humanities in general. We're just against certain thinkers whose charlatanry can lead people astray, correct? Right. Maybe instead of being neutral, it's it's specifically the supposed neutrality of objective knowledge, right. correct? Like, as you point out, and I forget again, which theorist who says this that you quote, but it's not only does their book mainly amount to a series of somewhat interesting footnotes insofar as what they're calling out for each thinker really doesn't have any bigger implications to said thinker given the proper context, but it also seems like their book would have never come out if they didn't have this their status, their social status as scientists. Yes. Well, it's, it's actually a critic, Gosh Garian, who says that about the interesting footnotes, not me. Can't take credit for that. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's the thing is like a lot of the, 
the energy and the prestige that allowed them to publish this book was based upon a kind of discourse of mastery, not a, a discourse of critique and that they actually had something genuinely critical to say. And so, I mean, I also talked about like some of the, the reviews for the book. So mm-hmm. like, like Talos's review, for instance, yeah. Yeah, Richard Dawkins, they also clearly are advocating a kind of position of mastery for science, which right. of course is precisely what science is supposed to be against, right? You know, science- <laughs> yeah, right. So that's I mean, a very Lacanian sort of critique too. Right. It's like it's <laughs> like what we say what I was saying a little bit earlier about the French Revolution was that it was supposed to be against hierarchy, monarchy, mastery, all those sorts of discourses, but through the back door, it allows them to return. And here we see like these scientists using science in the same way. I really wish I I had an opportunity to to talk about there's a section of fashionable nonsense. I don't know if you remember it, where they talk about criminology. Right. No, I don't. About, I don't remember that. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 great because they talk about how criminologists are basically scientists, and criminologists use science to catch criminals. And I really wanted to talk about this in in relation to the Carl's analysis of the Pearlin letter, where he shows how the police think like scientists, and they're unable to catch the criminal precisely right. for that reason. <laughs> because oh, that's so good. <laughs> that's a great point. I didn't get a chance to talk about that, but uh, like. I really, I really wanted to to put that in the book, um, but but it seems like you know the I talk about I just I make an illusion there on page eighty nine that like Sokol and Brickman is kind of they kind of use the same strategy as um, as Socrates right they they say like you know mm-hmm. I'm I'm the reasonable one right I I don't use just rhetoric right I right. don't just use wordplay I don't use just tricks I use logic right and it's those nasty sophists who who are the ones who are playing word tricks Mm -hmm. and misleading people. And they very cleverly reappropriate this rhetoric throughout the book, right? It's very cleverly done in that sort of sense, positioning themselves as being, we're telling you the truth. We're giving you something that is unvarnished, that is not just rhetorical wordplay. And it's those bad guys over there, those, you know, those, those nasty French philosophers who are selling you like all of the, these empty words that mean actually nothing and, and that, uh, and that they are misleading you with. They replay this trick at the same time, of course, just like Socrates does, you know, he, of course, using rhetoric and he's using his wordplay and he's using his trickery at the same time as using his. And his allegories, whenever, yeah. whenever all, all its fails resort to allegory. And so I guess that, that that's, that's kind of what I found interesting in this chapter was this is kind of the next iteration of the discourse, the university discourse, where now the master signifier is what slides under the bar in the bottom left-hand corner. That's part of what I was, I guess, was trying to call the neutrality of, of objective science, right? That now mastery is, is what is being concealed and what has to be, I don't know if you would say repressed. Um, yeah, dissimulated, something like that. So like the effects of power are sort of like they made deniable. They're like, well, we didn't, we didn't do that. It was the experiment that made us do that. <laughs> right. The system, the system did this. We, this, we have no responsibility for what happened. Right. So yeah, there's that kind of un- plausible deniability that is <laughs> built into the the university system that nonetheless hides the actual mechanisms of power. Yeah. Now, one of the arguments I was trying to glean throughout the book, I know this is in another chapter, and I'm I'm trying to re- just articulate the the thought process here. One of the since you were talking about Socrates, that sort of early Lacan seems to either identify with Socrates or 
or vibe with them, so to speak. And it's it's later Lacan that perhaps moves towards this understanding of the position of Plato as kind of the puppet master, if you will, of Socrates. And I'm wondering, is this part of Lacan's engagement with the movement of mastery from an ancient setting and discourse and scenario to a more modern one, where now, as we said, the French Revolution and sort of the fall of blatant power, now power finds new means of becoming rational, so to speak. Is that is that then the university discourse is, is more of a modern form of of mastery and clothing the emperor, so to speak? Yeah, I think you're talking about the last chapter where I where I use the the work of Oliver Harris, who wrote a great book on on Lacan's relationship with classical thought. And Harris talks about the way He's talking more about the way in which Lacan, early in his career, tends to identify with Socrates because he's very sort of um, anti-institutional, right? He mm, doesn't mm. he doesn't want to have like the the International Psychoanalytic Association like telling him what to do, and then he wants to found his own school, right? But then Harris notes the way in which he increasingly comes to identify more with Plato, who of course has founds his academy, right? And so when right. when Lacan has his own school. He suddenly, well, he doesn't suddenly, he gradually stops like seeing himself as the outsider, the lone wolf, the guy who, who stands up to the institution. And he becomes, of course, the head of, of the Ecole Freudian. Right. So, so there is this subtle shift that Oliver Harris notes in, in his book, the way in which as Lacan's position changes with regard to the institution, so too does his identification shift from Socrates to Plato. And nonetheless, what is interesting about that is, of course, you know, part of what is uh, central to, to Plato's style is, is his irony. And so one of the things that comes out more and more, Harris also notes, is the way in which Lacan has a kind of deliberately ironic distance from himself as a leader of the Ecole Freudian. Right. He sort of like wants to play the role. He wants to dress up as a sort of like the king of the king of psychoanalysis in that in one sense, but at the same time kind of mock that sort of position. This is really central to what I say about Lacan in the book is that he wants to be both those things. He mm-hmm. wants to be master and he also wants to mock the master and, and undermine that. And I don't know, it's it, especially reading about Lacan's sort of celebrity status at his seminars, especially in the 70s, because after, after the publication of Ecree and after May 68, he became this sort of celebrity that he wasn't before then. So it was sort of only sort of insiders and truly interested parties who went to his seminars before that time. But by the time you go to the 70s, it's going to like, you know, like a, a rock concert or right. something. <laughs> you know, the, he, he is the star and people yeah. are coming out there and he's, you know, he's this central sort of figure, the celebrity figure, and he both seems to love it and loathe it at the same yes, time. Right. I was just thinking about you quote seminar 20 when one of the sessions begins and he says, I had a dream where <laughs> I came yeah. to the lecture hall today and, and it was completely empty. And he says, this tells us something about wish fulfillment, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of, lot of like, that kind of grim irony. I certainly, when I was first reading Lacan, I never caught that kind of thing. But when when rereading him for this project, I was like, oh, oh my goodness! Like, there's there's a lot of comments like that across the seminars where he is he's very sort of he's almost you know dismissive and rude towards his audience. You know, he's sort right. of like, oh. He's like, oh, you guys don't understand this. Or you guys, you guys, you guys won't appreciate this. You, like, this is way over your heads. And they're just like, uh-huh, 
Uh-huh. Right down. <laughs> I mean, you see this, you, I mean, you see, I don't know if it's directly at seminar one, but I, I do recall in seminars two and three, even that early on, he, he says some at least subtly disparaging remarks. Yeah. There's video on YouTube of, it's not a seminar, but it says talk that Lacan gives. And I forget, I don't even know for sure what year it is, but it's the title is something like, there's like a, uh, a situationist that disrupts the meeting. It comes up to Lacan, like there's a central desk or whatever, and pours water on Lacan's papers. And Lacan kind of lets him talk. But earlier on in the video, it's funny. You can kind of see Lacan has this sort of very elaborate, I don't know, it's sort of this tie thing, right. lapel thing yeah. on, his, on his shirt that's very extravagant. And just the way that he he works the room, you know what I mean? And he yeah. even down to his movements are very much like this. You know what I mean? Someone who understands theatricality, I think. Yeah. Extensively. I haven't seen the the video, but I've seen you share some of the screenshots. Right. Yeah. I I, I share those screenshots all the time. Yeah. I wouldn't put it past him to have scripted that either. (laughs) (laughs) Another quick little anecdote, if I may squeeze this in. So I I thought it was very, since you had mentioned Plato not long ago in in the chat, about how Lacan sort of t- says that Plato was already Lacanian. I've had a running joke for a long time, and I had no idea that this was even a thing until I read, read the book, but um, I've always had this joke about how Plato got the idea for the philosopher king from Lacan and sort of this Hegelian or like templexical sort of fashion as he sort of has this vision or something of Lacan and says, okay, that's the, that's the figure. <laughs> It's interesting, though, because that that means that Plato would have fundamentally misrecognized and misunderstood Lacan if that were to happen, because Plato is precisely he even tried, at least as far as we are told, to convince the king of Syracuse to adopt his ideas. And and I think that the interesting thing is the reason why it doesn't work is that the master's discourse shows that it doesn't need knowledge. Right. Right. It doesn't need to concern itself with knowledge. It doesn't need to justify itself philosophically right that's perhaps more of the university discourse but peter i'll i'll let you chime in if you, if you think i'm kind of correct in that that sense two things first of all i think cooper the the quote you're talking i, I can't find it right now but it's is by badieu yes it's from from badieu actually says that where he's he says basically this kind of semi-serious joke that plato was yeah there oh yeah there's uh, there it is so in Badiou, in his conversation with Rudinesco says, uh, what does he say? That well, I'll read it aloud. It says, yes. we've, see, we've seen how he is able to argue, not without humor, that Plato was already Lacanian. Right? <laughs> and so, of course, we can see that Badiou is not taking this serious, entirely seriously, right? right. He's, he's sort of realizing that Lacan is kind of making a joke about like how he, in the same way that Nossi and Lukulabat rather more seriously talk about the way in which Lacan plugs in his ideas into earlier thinkers and uses them as, as if they all exist on the same sort of plane of thought. But there is, uh, there is actually, I think it's in Seminar 7, where he, just to go back to what you were saying, Taylor, about the difference between the ancient and the moderns, where mm-hmm. he actually says, I don't think that Plato would understand psychoanalysis, right? <laughs> and he says this because he says that ancient thinkers like Plato and Aristotle existed in a context where mastery was restricted to those who were, who were above slaves, mm-hmm. right? And because they had this built-in hierarchy within their society as a, as a conceptual thing, 
right? As well as a structural thing that they would not have been able to understand psychoanalysis as a modern kind of discourse. So he he specifically locates psychoanalysis as being something that has come after the sort of like the idea of the enlightenment idea of mm -hmm. universal equality. Right. So there are different ways of, of relating Lacan to Plato. And as I, as I said, you know, Oliver Harris does this wonderful job of like looking at the, the way in which he has this sort of ironic institutional ambiguity about Plato as the head of academy, but also wanting to be at the same time Socrates outside of the outside of the system. And then, like, as you mentioned, like the ancient versus the modern, he's also thinking about it in this way. So the Badiou quote that you're referring to, Cooper, I think we always have to keep that with a, a grain of, take that with a grain of salt because yeah. Oh, yeah. he's definitely at least half serious right. and at least half joking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just thought it was funny. It was a funny coincidence since I kind of made that, I haven't read that book. So it was an yeah. interesting little uh, coincidence. Have either of you read that Badiou Rudinesco book where they have like, basically they sit down, it's like 30 years after Lacan's death. Right. And they're sort of they're basically having a sort of like a fanboy chat about what they remember about him and what they like about him and what what he contributed. And, you know, and, they, and then they typed up the transcript and published it as, as a small little book. That sounds um, great. What's, what's the title of that book? Um, I have the Rudinesco biography, but I haven't read it yet. But I'd be interested he, to read this as, as well. If you happen to remember called it. Jacques Lacan, past and present. Mm, OK, I'll add it to the list. It does sound fascinating. I, I, I do recall some of Badu's other works where he elaborates on this notion of anti-philosophy and Lacan being an anti-philosopher. So I would like to see that. And, um, you know, in preparation for our discussion today, I also read Fink's, I guess, it's, I think it's 1998, his essay on on the discourses, right, on, on the master signifier. It's one of the, the, the works that you cite. And I remember in a footnote, he says something about the he says that the Rudinesco biography amounts to nothing more than slander, which for two reasons, I wanted to know why he might say that. And the other thing, I thought it was an interesting slip because he obviously means libel, right? Because <laughs> slander is spoken and libel is written. So it's an interesting little analyst slip from, from Fink. But do, do you have any idea? Do you remember that footnote in your review of all the literature or, or do, you, do you have any idea if Fink elaborates on that notion elsewhere, and if not, then I just thought it was an interesting thing to note since Cooper brought up her biography, her biography of Lacan, obviously. One of the things I didn't know when I started this project was just how deep the divisions run within both within the Lacanians and like between the Lacanians and the anti-Lacanians. Basically, there seems to be like there are no or very few positions in between, right? Mm. There's very few. You either love Lacan. <laughs> or you hate Lacan, you either embrace this Lacan or you embrace that Lacan and right. like any other interpretation you have to hate. So I, I I found this a very strange thing when I was reading because I, honestly, I I found things that I gained a lot of benefit from, from, from pretty much all the positions, maybe not so much the anti, anti-Lacanian ones like right. Dallas and, and, but certainly from reading the anti-Lacanian figures, Bork Jakobsen and particularly Rouston, I, I think was a, like a fascinating experience because he really does take, he really does identify some fascinating contradictions within psychoanalysis and within Lacan. But I think the, what you're seeing there with Fink and Rudinesco is a kind of, there's a kind of a turf fight. Yes, between, okay, I see, I see. Between those Lacanians who follow more the, the later Lacan compared to the earlier middle Lacan, and also those who follow Jacques-Alain Miller versus those who do not. 
Right? I see. So, yes, yes. Makes sense. So Rudinesco is very much on the, the anti-Malaya side, right? Right. Um, I and see. I think I think Fink is much more on the on his side, even though they both, I think for me, both Fink and Rudinesco are much more early to middle Lacan thinkers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. right. I find Fink very useful in explaining the imaginary and the symbolic, but when it comes to trying to explain the real. I think he, he he kind of is very he's weak found in that lack, area. He's found <laughs> lacking, right? Yes, is, he's found lacking, yes. <laughs> so unless you want to, um, unless there's anything else we want to say about SoCal and Brigmont, I mean, you know, it's probably been said before, Cooper. Um, I did, well, I did want to mention just briefly that I forget what the, okay, you mentioned the Dawkins article or review of, Yeah. okay, so the, I believe that was published in what, like Scientific American? It was... I think it was, was it not just the journal science or maybe it was the, hold on, let me see. I've got it. But um, I think it's fairly clear that he didn't engage with the thought whatsoever. And is basically kind of parroting the Sokol and Brickwonko. It's it's in the journal nature. Nature. Yeah. So he gives the, he, the way that that they try to pass it off is as if this is, is if he's actually engaged with Lacan's work and, you know, very doubtful. Right, and the other French sort of thinkers. I don't know. It's very, very dubious for Dawkins. I have a friend that actually just made a video about this whole controversy, and as well as uh, Chomsky's contributions. You know, they think Chomsky directly as someone who contributed to this the project. There was another thinker that I can't. Uh, it's, it was a uh, Bourdieu. Pierre Bourdieu also was someone that they so call in Brickmont think as part of the book that I that's found, interesting. Yeah, which I, yeah, exactly. I found that quite interesting given Bourdieu's proximity to Baudrillard. But anyways. Well, perhaps it's, perhaps he's representing the social sciences and right. trying to, to, right. to keep, keep them out of the line of fire. <laughs> yeah, right. Perhaps. I just wanted to mention that briefly. One of my favorite parts of, parts of my book is actually that the end of that chapter, because I thought the, uh, I haven't seen enough people talk about, like seriously about what, Lacan's relationship to mathematics is what is this mm-hmm. fascination that he has? Like a lot of a lot of the the people who are talking about the Mathians were sort of well, he seems to have started a project and then he didn't really finish it, or or he he started this project of trying to create a formal language of psychoanalysis, but it you know it basically disappeared up its own butt. <laughs> you know, it, it it became so complicated and so complex that you know you might as well dismiss it. Whereas I think, as I put it here with his, the engagement with Bardieu, is that what he sees in mathematics is that it's, it's fascinating to him, as I put it here. Mathematics is fascinating to him precisely because it is authoritative. Its mm-hmm. equations have an irrefutable power, a power that is grounded in rational knowledge, sorry, rational logic, and yet the power of that rationality can itself be explained. Right. So two plus two equals four. And we can all see that that's a logical, it's something that is rational, but we also can't explain why it's rational. (laughs) Right. And I think this is something that Lacan is very interested in. Right. Is like, how do you get, how do you then create a discourse? How then do you create a politics? How do you create a philosophy that is centered around this apparent paradox? Right. Like, how do you, how do you create something that is both irrational and yet has, and yet has a power to it? at the same time, which of course is what he's claiming the university discourse is masquerading as, right? It's it's masquerading as rationality, but actually operating as a tool of power. But he wanting to actually create a genuine rational power, right? Marriage of those two things. And that's what I think he aspired to do, but I don't think Lacan ever succeeded in doing that. And and I also think that uh, you point out, and you may be quoting someone, 
But this notion that the mathem ideally is able to transmit information absolutely without loss. Is this also a part of it, the, the irrefutable power, as you put it, uh, in, in terms of this? I guess that that was what I always assumed, because as you said, you know, a lot of the times when the when the Lacan in mathematics is brought up, it's it's usually dismissive or superficial. And you do go deep into it, especially dealing with Descartes and obviously bringing up the do. But I had always just assumed that it was this way of the formulas are ways of capturing and transmitting without information loss. That's one of the interpretations by some of his critics. Okay. Um, and I think I think maybe Roustan maybe thinks closer to that idea that he thinks that's what Lacan is trying to do. Mm-hmm. But I don't see it as it's never directly signal, signaled that way by Lacan himself, as far as, gotcha. I can, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Taylor, this actually might be more something you might be able to answer, but I'm just kind of curious. What relationship do the mathemes have to something like Guattari's diagrammatics? Well, I mean, like, I almost with, feel with, like there's got to be an, in, you know what I mean? There's got to be sort of, maybe I'm being too linear with my idea. No, no, I mean, I, I do, I do think they obviously share similarities and there's no doubt that Guattari gains inspiration from, because Lacan also has diagrams throughout his work, as you right. know. And I guess the only way I would distinguish them is that the formulas are algebraic, at least in that sense, have a mathematical aspect to them in terms of their some symbolization. But you see that Guattari's diagrams, right. there's some extra layers added to it, right. uh, specifically the use of, of language that isn't stripped of its formal qualities, or gotcha. is it stripped gotcha. down to its formal qualities? Gotcha. Um, Peter, would you, would, you, would you kind of agree with that? I don't know. I don't know anything about Guattari's diagrammatics, um, so I can't speak to that. But I honestly don't know what Lacan was trying to do with his mathemes. I've read them all. I've read all the critics talking about them. I, I still, I still don't really know what the the mathemes themselves were really attempting to do. I mean, I can. For me, the only the only formula that really have any sort of profound interest and meaning are the the four discourses mm-hmm. yeah because i i sat down and i was able to work out what each formula actually means and how like it expresses a different relationship to power right and the way i mean obviously particularly the the discourse of mastery and the this the discourse of the hysteric and the discourse of the university are the the central ones and so those three formula they express something meaningful to me but some are like, you know, the L schema and all those sorts of things. Mm. I know Zizek always likes to quote the um, the formula of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one is is uh, one of his favorites. But honestly, apart from the four discourses, I don't genuinely see anything all that interesting about them. I would have to tend to agree with that. But that could be, again, my lack of understanding those diagrams in, in out, of, out, of, out of context. In seminar seven, seminar nineteen, which is where he talks a lot about Frege and the one and the, the that is not one, but basically this is his sort of formal logical mathematical attempt to basically just restate the subject who is supposed to know in these right. sort of like mathematical terms. So basically, there never is a one because you know basically it's a fantasy in the same projected in the same way that the the subject who is supposed to know is projected. So I, as I said, I, I I understand what he's doing, and I and I can see why he's like sort of excited to see in someone like Frege that there are parallels with 
his way of thinking that he he then tries to appropriate. But I, I, I can't see it doing something new. I can see something new in the four discourses, in the way it collapses, like into a kind of monism. But I can't see anything new in the in the other examples right. that he gives. So, and what's fascinating about the formula is that each time we we shift, we have the quarter turn, right? We have a clockwise quarter right. turning of of each symbol, and there there's a kind of elegance. I mean, you could say even math, math, mathematicians should should have seen that kind of elegance in the, as you said, in this collapsing in, in kind of a minimalism. But um, I think it's Kashkarian again, who it was very scathing and, and says that if Sokal and Brickman don't intend to discuss what is psychoanalytic about Lacan's writing, then you kind of lose everything. Yes. Right. If you're only talking about him in terms of mathematics, qua mathematics, you're missing the whole thing. Yeah. I love that quote. It's it's so sharply pointed. He says, I found the quote it's on page 81. Okay. He says, Sokol and Brickman's book, he points out, shows that a half a dozen pages in the column make no sense from a mathematical point of view, whereas what one wants to know is whether they make sense from a psychoanalytic point of view. <laughs> yeah. Or conversely, since our authors promise they will, quote, not enter into debate on the properly psychoanalytic part of Lacan's work, and that part of his work is, well, all of it. <laughs> I, so. I think that's great. That that <laughs> kind of summarizes great. why perhaps you said that they are the least, either the least charitable or have the least ground from which to to say anything at all about about Lacan. Yeah. yeah. I think we were talking about this in the before we started recording was, you know, Dylan Evans and Stuart Schneiderman have the the background, right? They right. have the tools. They have the they've done the reading, right? They know their Lacan, but both of them fail to or refuse or what I, I I honestly don't really fully understand their motivations in not providing at least some kind of genuine critique. I see the limitations of Nancy and Le Coulibat, of you know uh, of Michael Borg Jacobson, uh, of Francois Rouston. Right? I see their limitations, but I don't see any in in Evans and in in Schneiderman. I don't see any attempt at critique. It's just this is nonsense. I was tricked into following it, and now. My eyes have been opened, you know, the scales have fallen off my eyes on my road to, to Damascus. <laughs> right, um, right. And now I've been converted to whether it's scientism in the case of, of Evans or like I'm now a, a kind of right-wing life coach in the case <laughs> right. of, of Schneiderman. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is outcast. Orange.